Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 2. Gospel of John chapter 2. Last Monday night, Sue and I finished our Spanish class. You're not going to hear any more stories about Spanish class after today. If there had been an awards banquet at our Spanish class, we would have gotten the award for perfect attendance. Um, you should have heard our teacher preaching to us about learning Spanish. I mean, if she'd have just put the word, the Bible, in her little sermon and left out the word Spanish, she could have come right here and preached it. She said, practice every day. Get some tapes. Listen while you drive. Read a Spanish book. Watch Spanish TV. As you practice, you will learn little by little. Okay, and she went on and on. I said, yeah, I feel your pain, sister. (laughs) She said, don't try to understand every word. Just try to get the broad meaning of the conversation. You know, that's okay if you're listening. <laughs> it's just not okay when you're speaking. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty good advice for Bible study, though, also. Uh, I believe that the words of Scripture are inspired. I believe they're worthy of our study. But sometimes when we delve down into the minutia of Scripture, we miss the big point. We miss the big lesson Today's story could be one of those episodes, the turning of the water into wine. I want to make sure that you get the big picture, the big story, as well as some of the little details. Let's uh, follow, please, as I read it from John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him." The main point of this passage, this beginning of miracles, the the beginning of the ministry of Christ is right there at the end. It's about who Jesus is. And we want to try to understand that starting, first of all, with Mary's expectation about him. Mary clearly had um, an opportunity that nobody else had to understand the person of Jesus. 
as we think about Mary's situation, we first of all need to look at this circumstance and understand it just a little bit. Look at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I believe what this indicates to us is that Mary was there in some capacity, maybe as a relative, helping out with the wedding. We know all about getting help for weddings. We have one coming in less than two weeks, and that's where we were yesterday in Wenatchee working on some wedding details, and Sue went to a wedding shower, and we're rounding up all the help we can get, (laughs) recruiting some helpers that don't even have a job to do. Just stand there, and when we need you, we'll ask for you, you know, because there's always those unknown things. I believe Mary was there in some capacity as a helper because the scripture says she was there, but Jesus and his disciples were invited as guests. And so there's a wedding going on. And uh, weddings of that day, of course, were different from today. Engagement was different from today. Uh, The engagement was the legal obligation between the two people, and to break an engagement meant to have a divorce. Uh, It was not a simple thing, but the engagement would happen sometime within a year before the wedding, and uh, when the bridegroom decided it was time to get married, he would come and get his bride, and they would go back to his house and have this big feast, invite all the family and relatives and the neighbors and so on. And uh, in this particular wedding, they ran out of wine. Now, part of the observation we need to make there is this. Evidently, this family was a poor one. Because if they had been wealthy, they would have had plenty of preparations made. But for some reason, they ran out. Either they didn't have enough to begin with, or extra guests came. Some people have speculated that Jesus and the disciples were late late invitees. And and, uh, for some reason, they ran out. The New Testament scholar Merrill Tenney helps us understand the critical nature of running out of wine. Had they actually ran out of wine, the occurrence would have been regarded as an insult to those present and would have banished the host and hostess to practical isolation. Uh, I guarantee you on the 17th of December, when my daughter gets married to Wenatchee, if you're there and we run out of food, I'm going to say, see you later. I'm not running to the 7-Eleven to get more food. When, when, when those cheesecakes that I've made for 200 people are gone, it's gone. Okay? And when the punch is gone, it's gone. And in our society, to some extent we understand that, unless we run out, you know, unless there's a thousand people there. Oh, Lord, help us. And, uh, but basically, you know, we have the, the goodies. Today there's going to be cookies, and they're going to run out because all the kids are going to run over there and get them and... We're going to run out, but we're not going to run to the store and get more because we say, well, we're out of cookies. They're gone. It's not a big deal. You'll live. You're going to eat lunch in a couple hours. But in this day, things didn't work that way. In fact, one student of history in this time has even indicated that the nature of society was such that if if I threw a wedding party and had this big feast and had all this food and drink, and then my neighbor has one, and the food and drink he offered were not as great and as plentiful as what I offered, I could sue him. They had to reciprocate. Now, we look at that, we, we can't hardly get our mind around that. That's crazy to us. 
But the hospitality and the nature of society was such that this was a big deal. We look at this and all we're thinking of as Baptists is, what's Jesus doing with wine? And we'll get to that in a minute. Because <laughs> I know that's what you're all thinking. What's Pastor Dave going to say about that wine? You know, And I have something to say about it. But we need to understand, this was a critical situation for these people. It wasn't a small thing. You may have looked at this and said, why is this miracle even in the Bible? But it was a big deal to this family, a big deal to this couple getting married. They've run out. And, uh, and so it's an important situation that needs to be handled. Now look at Mary's expectation. Look at verse 3. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus... And in case you haven't noticed, John the Apostle never mentions her name. She's only actually mentioned in this, in this gospel twice, and both times she's called the mother of Jesus. She's not called by her name, Mary. The mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. Now clearly she expected him to do something. She expected him to do something. Why is that? I want to take you back to the birth of Christ and think about what Mary went through and just think about the person of Christ from her perspective. Here we are in Luke chapter 1. Now the sixth, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, just stop there for a minute. <laughs> just stop a minute. We read this so fast. Mary's just minding her business. She's engaged. And an angel comes and talks to her. Have you had that happen? If you have, we need to talk after church. Okay? But in those days, it did actually happen once in a while. But it was not so common as to be common. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. She, she was not excited about this. She was troubled. She was perplexed. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is equivalent, this is an expanded way for the angel to say, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. Now being a Jewish woman, Mary knew something about the Messiah to come. And this angel comes in this, in this expanded theological way and says, you are going to give birth to the Messiah. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man, I have not had relations with a man. How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now if you were a young girl 
who had an angel talk to her and subsequently got pregnant and you knew that you had never been with a man and you remembered these words right here? Wouldn't that change your life? With God, nothing's impossible. And so when Mary comes to this situation where they've run out of wine, it's going to be a terrible social problem. She goes to Jesus thinking, man, nothing's impossible. Do you think that way when you have a problem? Do you think nothing is impossible for God? Listen to this episode from Mary and Jesus' life. So it was when the angels had gone away from them. This is after the birth of Christ, right at the birth, and but after the, that happened. That after the angels had gone away from them, from the shepherds, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mothers think about children far more and far more deeply than fathers do in general. And especially in this situation, I mean, you've been through this virgin conception and then birth... And now these shepherds come in and go, wow, an angel came and told us to come here and worship. She's going, wow. She's pondering. She's thinking about all these things in her heart. And now this episode. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's another way to say he was waiting for the Savior of Israel, the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death or he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Ouch. Mary went through these things with Jesus as a young child. And so she lived her life, I believe, in expectation of him becoming the Messiah. She didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, but she knew there was something miraculous and special about him. She didn't fully understand all of the truth of Jesus like we do today because she didn't have the whole word of God. And God didn't, uh, didn't uh, decide to tell her all of the truth. But she knew what she had experienced and what she had heard and what she had seen and here now, in this part of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, she says, Jesus, they have no wine. She clearly expects him to do something about it. Now, what comes next is equally as surprising to us as the fact, perhaps, that Jesus would make wine. Look what happens next. Jesus said to her, 
Okay, Mary, whatever you ask, I'll do. You are my mama. How can I say no to my mama? No, what does he say? Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when he uses the word woman, uh, that sounds pretty disrespectful to us. Um, it was not as disrespectful in the day. It would have been a common way to refer to a woman, perhaps, that you didn't know the name of. Um, you know, woman, uh, whatever. Uh, it was not particularly an insult. But, but, what we see here is Jesus speaks to her in a less than familial way. He doesn't say mother. He doesn't say now mother. He says, woman, why are you talking to me about this? The observation um, of this event leads us to a principle here. Mary had to realize her her position in Christ. He didn't say, I will do this because you have asked. I will do this because I love you. I will do this because there's a need. Did Jesus do miracles strictly because people needed them done? If that were the case, he'd still be doing them today in a fashion like he did them then. We need healing today just as much as those people did. I know we have some medicines today and things that they didn't have. But that doesn't always cure, does it? And it certainly doesn't cure easily. Jesus did miracles for particular reasons. And so he says to her, look, if I do something about this, you need to realize it's not going to be because you are my mother and you have come and put this pressure on me. Several authors I'd like to quote for you as they observe from this passage. Leon Morris said, we should probably infer that Jesus, though speaking politely, is putting distance between them. Another author said this, Jesus was telling Mary Mary that she should never presume upon their earthly relationship. From this moment forward, Mary was to bear in mind that her new role as, she was to bear in mind her new role as completely subservient to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said this, although there is no higher power on earth than a father and mother's power, even this is at an end when God's word and work begin. Maybe some of you are quizzical about what I'm speaking of here. Listen to Matthew chapter 12. While he was still talking to the multitude, that's Jesus, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sis- my, my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was clearly saying family relations are not the same for him, nor in the body of Christ. He tells us elsewhere that we are to have an allegiance to him that supersedes our allegiance to our family. That doesn't mean that we leave our family behind. It doesn't mean that we don't love our families. But it means that we must love him first. Jesus is speaking to Mary saying, Listen, 
Just because you're concerned about it and you're my mother doesn't mean that I am necessarily concerned about it in the same way. He is putting this distance between them. F.F. Bruce said this, the fact that he calls her woman shows us that if she sought his help now, she must not seek it on the basis of their mother and son relationship. In other words, now she comes to her equal with every other believer in him. She doesn't come with some special priority because he is her mother. The reason I'm spending time on this today in particular is because there is a major world religion which teaches its followers to pray to Mary because they teach she has a special power of persuasion over her son as every mother is supposed to have over her son. Guess I missed that lesson somewhere along the line. They teach that if you go and pray to Mary, she will go and talk to Jesus and say, Hey, Dave Lunsford, did you see that prayer that he prayed, Jesus? You should really grant his prayer. And I'm not making it up. This is their doctrine, and I'll show you where it's written. Because she's his mother, he will grant the request. And so they teach their adherents to pray to Mary. They don't pray to Jesus necessarily as much as they pray to Mary. Now, I would submit to you that one of the two passages we've just looked at, this one here and this one in John, clearly tells us that, John, that Jesus does not do things strictly because his mother asks him to. In fact, that she holds the same relationship to him as we do as equal believers in Christ. And in fact, we don't need to pray to Mary or anybody else because of this truth here in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You don't need to pray to Mary. You don't need to ask Pastor Dave to pray for you, although I do and I'm glad to do so. You can talk right to God. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven your sins. You are just as righteous as Mary in the Father's eyes. Your prayers are just as powerful as anybody else's if you are right with God when you pray them. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we understand this lesson that all humanity is subservient to Jesus. He is the Lord. We are His subjects, including Mary. But she makes this request, and He goes on. Look at her faith in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She doesn't even, he doesn't even agree to do the miracle. But she just looks at the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. That's faith. That's an incredible amount of faith. Let's look at this miracle itself now. In this miracle, I believe the key thing we're understanding within this understanding of Christ as the Son of God is this. He has power over nature. He has power over nature. Jesus turned the water into wine. In your King James, it uses the term firkins to describe these these large containers. 
um, in the New King James here, it says 20 or 30 gallons apiece. What were these containers? It says according to the, the purification rules of the Jewish people. Here's the way it went. The Old Testament described some rites of purification, but the Pharisees and, and their f- fellows had made up a whole bunch of rules about purification. For instance, they said if you don't wash your hands before you eat, you are spiritually impure. Okay? Now we know it's a good habit to wash your hands before you eat. We look at it as a medical thing or as a health issue, not a spiritual issue. But they had spiritual rules about that. So every time they ate, they had to wash, they had to pour water over their hands. If you figure it out here, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 180 gallons of water represented by these pots. And if you had a wedding with a large number of guests, and typically the wedding party would last for a week they'd be eating a number of meals over that week and every time they ate they had to wash their hands wash their hands wash their hands and uh so the servants would take the water and pour it and the people would wash their hands and they'd be ritually clean so it took a lot of water to have a celebration like this that's why there was so many huge water pots sitting there waiting to be used so jesus said fill the pots up with water and, uh, and then he said, dip out and take it to the, uh, to the man who's in charge, the, the head of the catering, if you will, and show it to him. And the scripture tells us that it was very excellent wine. I only really drank wine once in my life, and it was at an Episcopal church. I was in a musical group that uh, performed there at the request of our music teacher, and it was Christmas Eve, and they had communion, and he said, I didn't know anything about the Episcopalian church, and he said, if you've been baptized, he said, they've recently changed the rules, if you've been baptized, you don't have to be an Episcopalian, but if you've been baptized, you can have communion. I thought, great, I'm up for an experience here, you know, being a Baptist all of my life, and so I went down front and kneeled on the rail and had the little the little host or little wafer there, and then they came with this cup and gave me a drink. And as soon as I got it in my mouth, I knew I didn't want it to be there anymore. And uh, I'm one of those, I know now, fortunate people who grew up without the influence of alcohol in my life, either from my parents or my own life, and I'm thankful for that. When I took that drink of wine, I thought, Lord, have mercy. I can't spit it out, and I don't want to swallow it. And it ain't a spiritual problem. I just don't like the way it tastes. I don't know whether that was good wine or bad wine. I know I didn't care for it. Okay? I don't know what good wine tastes like. I've talked to some, some wine-drinking people from time to time, and they, some, I don't remember who it was now, they said they were in a restaurant, and some guy bought a $250 bottle of wine, and they go, man, that was good wine. I'm clueless, you know, maybe some of you know, maybe you don't want to raise your hand and tell us, but yeah, it's good. I do know from being around a fair number of unsaved people and a fair number of parties and organizations that I've been part of that all of the people that I know who drink today have a purpose, and the purpose is not to take care of their bodily needs for beverage, okay? And I don't have time today to spend a lot of time talking about this. I'll talk about it at length one of these days. I'll preach on, on the whole counsel of God on drinking. But I would say this from Proverbs. Did I put that up there? I did not. From Proverbs twenty three thirty one. there's a whole section there in Proverbs 23. You should read it about drinking and drunkenness. 
God always condemns drunkenness throughout the Scripture, period. Drunkenness is never acceptable. When are you drunk? Well, according to Ephesians 5.18, you're drunk when you have enough alcohol that it, it is controlling you, not the Holy Spirit. Okay? Do you have to be falling down, throwing up drunk to be drunk? No. The question is, when does it start to control you? And my unsaved friends and the parties I've been at, I'll put it this way. When you start to get the buzz... And they know when that is, because I've heard them talk this way. Yeah, I was drinking such and such a beer, and I didn't even have a buzz yet. Clearly, there was a goal in mind. And I would just exhort you, if, if alcohol is part of your life, when you start to get the buzz, you should stop drinking, if not sooner. But there's a imp- couple of important notes about drinking in the time of Christ, and you need to understand this, and this is based on good historical research, not on Christian fanaticism. There were only two beverages available, water and wine. Now you think about it today, how many beverages, there's an untold number of beverages available, okay? You don't have to drink wine, you don't even have to drink water if you want to, you can drink Coke or, or what, you know, such, such, such a thing. But here's the deal about water. They didn't have any water purification systems And so they never knew if the water was pure or not. And so they mixed their wine and water. That was their common beverage. And it was common to mix it at least three to four to one. Three or four to one. Which means three or four parts of water and one part of wine. Naturally fermented wine, no sugar added, not distilled spirits. And so the alcohol content would be relatively low especially when you have new wine that has not sat for a long time. And so I offer that to you simply to say this. I believe quite firmly that these people were drinking essentially what we would call punch, which is a mixed beverage with a lot of water involved so that it would probably affect your bladder before your mind. And if you'd like to see the research, I'll show it to you out of the secular encyclopedias, not out of the Christian magazines. Okay? I think that's important to understand that this is not based on my fanaticism against alcohol. It's based on good, good scholarship. And so Jesus turned this water into wine. They're going to have a crisis. He turns the water into wine. Why does the Scripture tell us that it was the best wine? Isn't that sort of like God just tempting us to drink alcohol? No. You know what it is? It's God saying, when I do a miracle, I do it all the way. I don't make cruddy wine. I don't heal people halfway. I don't save people halfway. When I do a miracle, it's 100% all the way. Now, having said all of that, remember how I started my sermon along this line? Don't miss the big point for the details. Here's the details from Deuteronomy 18. Do you remember here in verse 11? He says this, beginning of signs. He doesn't say miracles. John uses the word sign all the time for this. A miracle is just something that causes you to go, wow, what is that? A sign is something that points in a direction. And here's what it's based on from the Old Testament. If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, 
the th- if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. If you were to look at all of the relevant scripture in the Old Testament, it would go something like this. Moses is a great example. God said to Moses, Moses, go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said, he's not going to listen to me. God said, I'll give you a miracle to do, a sign. And when you go and talk to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, how do I know you're from God? You do the miracle. And it will point to the fact, it will verify or validify, it will give you validity to say, you are my spokesman. And so Moses went and performed uh, eventually the ten miracles, and after the tenth one, Pharaoh let him go. It pointed to the fact that Moses truly was speaking on behalf of God. Jesus did miracles to demonstrate that he was, in fact, the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. It is a sign. Old te- people who knew the Old Testament in the day of Christ, when they saw him do miracles and they heard his words claiming to be the Messiah, it should have been like a giant road sign that said, yes, this is the man. This is who you've been looking for. There were two tests of a prophet in the Old Testament. One of them is, does he have a miracle that comes true? The second test was, does his word agree with the known truth of God? People who call themselves prophets today who prophesy things that disagree with the Scripture should be disregarded on that basis, whether there's a miracle or not. Same thing would be true of Jesus. And of course, everything he said fit with the Old Testament. It didn't fit with what the Pharisees thought or wanted, but it did fit with the true Old Testament. This miracle, like all the others we're going to see in John, was a sign And it goes along with John 6, 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And when Jesus' disciples saw this sign, what did they do? Verse 11, they believed in him. Turn with me to the very end of the Gospel of John to chapter 20. John 20, not quite to the end, but almost. John 20 and verse 31. Verse 30 we'll start with. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. If you read uh, the Gospels very carefully, you'll see words like this. He would come into town, and it says people brought him the sick, and it says he healed all of the sick people. That would be like him coming to Ferndale, and tomorrow not one sick person to be found anywhere. And so John, certainly he's telling us, look, I didn't write about every single miracle he did, many which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I would just share this with you today in conclusion. If I was to ask the question, why do I believe in God? I'd have to tell you because His Word has worked in my heart and caused me to believe. But as a Christian, 
when I have looked about to try to understand the, the validity of this, why can I trust this? The chief argument I would offer to you is this. John, who wrote those words, while he was writing them, was in exile on the island of Patmos. He had been chased around, harassed for his Christian faith, and instead of killing him, they put him out to pasture where he couldn't do any harm. Now, here's what I would ask you. Why does a guy go through that? Does he go through that for a lie? Would you, in, in an effort <laughs> to get rich and famous like the Apostle John did, promote the lie? History, uh, not the most reliable history, but probably the best we have, says that all of the apostles were killed for their Christian faith. Do you do that for a lie? I don't think so. And subsequent to the apostles, in the first 300 years of Christianity, tremendous numbers of Christians died for their faith. Do they do that for a lie? Not for long. And here we are, 2,000 years later, with the same truth of God, preaching the same message, ultimately because God makes it powerful in our hearts but we know it's trustworthy because John was an eyewitness and he gave his life and others carried this message on forward. John saw the miracle and believed. I would ask you today, when you see the miracles of Christ, do you believe? And Christian, do you believe that Christ has enough power to take care of your situation in a way that honors Him and will bring you joy and peace? Heavenly Father, May we be like the disciples. May we see your miracles and believe. May we be true disciples, not those who go back on our word. Father, if there's somebody here today who's never believed in Christ, open their eyes, open their heart. Help them to know the truth of the Savior. I pray in Christ's name, amen.